It's time to envision a new way of being heirs of the Reformation, a new way that happens to conform to the original Catholic vision of the Reformers. We at the Theopolis Institute would like to invite you to the 6th Annual Nevin Lectures, which will be on the topic of Reformational Catholicism. These lectures will be held February 22nd and 23rd here in Birmingham, Alabama. And for more information and registration, there's a link in the show notes. And you can also head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and head to the Lectures tab under Events. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the Content Manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. As a quick update, it is a big few weeks for us here at Theopolis. This weekend, we have our sixth annual Nevin Lectures, where Peter Lighthart is going to discuss Reformed Catholicity. The following weekend, March 1st and 2nd, we will be in Chicago for a regional course on how to read the Bible. And then from March 11th through 15th, we have our week-long intensive course here in Birmingham on the 10 words with Peter Lightheart. If you'd like more information on any of these events, please check out the links in the show notes or head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com. In this episode of the podcast, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to continue their ongoing discussion of the Song of Songs. Here, they'll be discussing chapters 5 and 6. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation over these chapters. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Leiter, and I'm here with Brian Motes, and uh, Alistair Roberts is also here. And we're continuing our discussion of different sections of the Song of Songs. Uh, we're in the middle of a series that we began uh, some weeks ago talking about some of the general issues the song presents and, and uh, defending a a particular allegorical or typological approach to the song. And uh, the last few weeks we've been talking about different sections of the book, taking a couple chapters at a time. Uh, We've talked about uh, one and two uh, a couple weeks ago, and last week we talked about chapters three and four. And um, at the beginning of chapter five, the very first verse of chapter five, I think really goes with the previous chapter. And we have the lovers that have come to the garden, they are in the garden, and they are feasting on one another. That's the consummation of their love. In, in terms of the romantic dimension of the poem, that's kind of the uh, climax of the whole of the whole poem. But then, as as we saw in chapter three, as soon as you have this moment of union and this consummation of the of their love, uh, there's a there's a separation, uh, and the uh, bride wakes up again to find her lover's absence. This time is a somewhat different scenario. Last time uh, the lover was simply absent and she went out searching in the streets for him. Uh, And in this case, he's there. He's seeking her. She hears him outside, his voice, his knocking, and he asks to come in, but uh, she refuses. I mentioned last time that uh, you have this dynamic of presence and absence uh, that uh, plays out in allegorical readings. And at least in uh, medieval readings of the poem, we have that uh, romantic dynamic is seen as an emblem or a type of the Christian life, a type of our life with God. When you get to Protestant readings of the Song of Songs, sometimes the sexual and erotic passion gets domesticated, and what's, what's more in view is the solidity and faithfulness of the lovers to one another and you lose something of the passion. But if you read medieval commentators on it, they take the 
they take the erotic passion as a kind of real symbol, a real sign of the kind of passion in our relationship with God. So I, I wanted to highlight just one example of that from uh, Bernard of Clairvaux who wrote uh, extended series of homilies on the Song of Songs. I think he got through the middle of chapter two. He's got like 80 or 90s and uh, spends the first uh, dozen or so talking about the kiss of God, kiss of the bridegroom. Uh, but this is what he says about um, the passion that the lovers have for each other. Oh, love, so precipitate, so violent, so ardent, so impetuate, so impetuous, suffering the mind to entertain no thought but of thyself, content with thyself alone. Thou disturbest all order, disregardest all usage, ignorest all measure. Thou dost triumph over in thyself and reduced to captivity. Whatever appears to belong to fittingness, to reason, to decorum, to prudence, or counsel. He's talking about human love there, but it's also, he's reading the whole poem allegorically. So this is also the character of, of uh, our love for God and in some way of God's love for us. But he's taking that the passion and the, the romantic interplay as a, as a uh, he do, doesn't try to domesticate it and tame it, but he wants to take that as a real sign of the kind of passion that we have in our relationship with God. The bride refuses, in this case, refuses to get up, even though the bridegroom is just outside the door, reaching through the door, uh, seeking for her. Uh, she says, I can't get up. Uh, I've washed my feet. I can't dirty them again. I've, I'm undressed, and I've washed my feet, and I can't dirty them again. Paul Griffith, who, whom I mentioned a number of times, uh, his, his uh, Brazos commentary on the Vulgate of the Song of Songs, takes that kind of in a, takes that in an allegorical, logical direction, and sees it as a as a kind of critique of uh, a certain a certain obsession with purity. She's too pure to follow her lover into the night. Uh, she doesn't want to get dirty in following her lover into the night. Rather, um, Griffith says she should be confident that if she gets dirty in seeking him and pursuing him, that he'll wash her feet, that she doesn't have to worry about the, whatever impurity she might uh, contract uh, by, by following him. In the, in the previous scene, in chapter 3, she was more bold. She just went out into the street searching for him, uncaring about what kind of appearance that might make. In this case, she's more concerned about staying clean and staying snug in bed. This is fairly obviously... Uh, the source for the image that uh, Jesus uses at the end of the uh, last of the seven messages to the churches in Revelation 3, when he's at the door knocking and seeking entry to the church of Laodicea. That connection with Revelation is worth attending to. More generally within Revelation, we have a lot of the imagery of the song taken up from the original wasif of the bridegroom, the, even down to details like the girded breast, and towards the end, we also have similar themes emerging with the bride being described, the calling to the bridegroom to come at the very end. And so as we see this song in the context of its use within the New Testament, it provides us with a justification for the allegorical reading that we've been advocating for here. And one of the, one of the things that I note in my commentary on Revelation that link with the song is the use of um, uh, poetic styles that resemble the wasifs that we looked at, uh, that we see in the song. That These are the, a wasif again is, a, is an ancient term, I think an Egyptian term for a certain kind of poem that describes the beauty of a, another person 
feature by feature, your eyes are like this and such, and your lips are like this and such, and your breasts are like this and such. That's a wasif style. We have that at the beginning of Revelation where John first sees Jesus and describes him from his uh, white head and hair down to his uh, burnished feet, and then eventually uh, comes to be speaking about his face, I think is the last of the descriptions. But that whole description is kind of a wasif on the bridegroom, Jesus. Uh, we have inverted uh, an inverted wasif in chapter 9 with the, uh, the little corpions that come up out of the pit. Uh, are they locusts? Are they scorpions? No, they're little corpions. And they're describing ha hair like women, teeth like lions. They have breastplates like, uh, like horses in certain, fa in certain respects. So they're described in, uh, as being composite creatures, but each feature is described and it's kind of a, a, uh, uh, an infernal bridal theme. You drew the connection between this, the letter to the Laodiceans in particular. And when you look at that letter, there are a number of details that can be expounded from this. So the reference to gold, clothing yourself with garments, and eye salve. It's not just to deal with blindness, it's to prepare yourself for the bridegroom. And in the New Testament, we have the coming of Christ like a thief in the night, but also the unexpected bridal or bride, bridegroom arriving and the bridal party has to be ready. Right. Yeah. So uh, Jesus, is the, Jesus is the lover in that scenario trying to gain entry. The Laodiceans are uh, reluctant to do it. Jesus wants to come in and eat with them, but the feast that he wants to have is a feast of, feast of love. That in, It's like the feast of the Song of Songs where the lover and the beloved feast on one another. And if, you, if you read the two passages together, you get a, that kind of romantic or erotic overtone that's uh, present in, the, in that message. And I think in some ways it's present in the messages uh, to the churches in general, because Jesus is presented as being this bridegroom, this royal bridegroom figure. And then he gives John messages to send out to the churches, which are severe, but they are genuinely love messages to his churches, to the bride. And the wedding feast is, of course, the culminating event of the book of Revelation. Even within the letters to the churches, you see a progression of imagery from the garden to the situation of the early churches as they're expecting the advent of their Lord. The, uh, as, the, as the story continues in uh, Song of Songs 5, the, the bride gets up out of bed, finally. She's persuaded to do so, and she goes uh, to the door trying to find her beloved. He's gone. And so she goes again out into the city searching for him. And this time the watchmen find her and wound her. This is beyond what happened in the previous similar scene when she went out into the city and was just scandalously searching for a man in the middle of the night. In this case, the, the watchmen uh, strike her and wound her. And uh, it's a wound that uh, signifies, in a sense, her, the passion that she has for her beloved. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of... Um, I guess an evangelistic scene here. She meets with other uh, daughter, the daughters of Jerusalem, other women, and uh, they seem uh, somewhat skeptical about uh, the about Dodi, the beloved. What kind of beloved is your beloved? What kind of beloved is your beloved? That thus you adjure, adjure, adjure us. Why are you so insistent on finding him? Is he is he really worth all your passion and all your trouble? And then she describes him uh, in six. Uh, sorry, chapter five, verses ten through sixteen. We talked about this passage a few weeks ago when we were talking about um, 
the, the temple imagery of the song. This is the, the bride's uh, poem celebrating the beauty of the bridegroom. The, there are two other poems that um, are the bridegroom talking about the bride, but this one is, is in the opposite direction where she's, it's another wasif where the bride is describing his head, his eyes, his cheeks, his lips, his hands, his legs, and then ends again with his mouth at the end of the poem. Um, and that seems to convince the daughters of Jerusalem that he's worth, that he's worth pursuing. Um, what kind of beloved is your beloved that thus you should adjure us? Well, he's like this. And then chapter six, uh, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? So they join in searching for the bridegroom. What does it teach us about love that we desire to relate our experience of love to a third party? That is a theme of the song that what the lovers want is not just they approve of one another, they delight in one another, but they, uh, there's also a desire to have others recognize the beauty of their beloved. Uh, that comes up in, the, in an earlier, uh, earlier image that's used. We talked about the, uh, the comparison to the bride as a, a mare among the chariots of Pharaoh which I, th I think is intended not just to be, a, you know, this awesome beauty like a, like a mare, but a mare among the stallions of Pharaoh means that she's, she attracts the notice of the, the other stallions in the stable. And uh, that's, that's part of, the, part of the attraction that she has. We have, we have a bit of that too here in chapter 6 where the, uh, the maidens, the queens, concubines, and maidens without number uh, they begin to celebrate the bride uh, and talk about her beauty. I want to come back to that, but so this, that's part of the part of the matrix of the song. It, it kind of puts, uh, kind of brings romantic attraction uh, into some kind of connection with with honor. Um, so honor is socially conferred. You gain honor in by doing good, uh, great deeds that others recognize and celebrate, or by having a certain character that others recognize and celebrate. Ultimately, it's the other that we want to that we want to impress. It's the Lord that we want to impress, and that's the that's the charge that Jesus, or the challenge that Jesus lays to the Pharisees. You seek honor from men; you should be seeking honor from God, but you should be seeking honor from another. So there's an approval from another that uh, that's uh, there's a proper approval from another that we're seeking a proper kind of honor, and I think that there's uh, some kind of parallel, at least between the the desire for the lovers to have the approval, to have others give their endorsement to their choice. Looking at that from the other perspective, we also find great delight in the love of two people that we are experiencing, just witnessing their love, whether it's in a movie, whether it's in our family network, whether it's someone in our church, whether it's something that people talk about now, shipping two characters that they... Um, desire to see two characters get together in a relationship because there's something delightful about seeing people's love. I don't know the phrase shipping. <laughs> you, know, you have to explain this. <laughs> so often you'll see people, young people, um, fusing two characters' names in a film or a book um, uh -huh. because they want to see them be a couple or they have a particular relationship that they find especially delightful. Uh, Brad Gelino? Is that, that, is that, a, is that yep. a shipping? <laughs> okay. I, I've never heard the term. Um, 
I'm not in touch with the. Uh, I don't have a finger, my finger on the pulse of youth culture, as, <laughs> as you obviously do. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's an interesting that's an interesting point. I think there's the obviously that can also arouse envy uh, that uh, they have something that you don't have. That uh, there's a there's a desire to have a kind of love or kind of intimacy that uh, that uh, you see in someone else. But yeah, there's a uh, properly there's a delight in in the joy and happiness of others, and we rejoice in their uh, you know when when the right people find each other, then uh, there's a brings delight to those who are around them, the matchmakers who are trying to match them up. And perhaps especially aptly within this context, we delight in royal weddings and the bringing together of a royal couple that we delight in them. Yeah, yeah you're continuing your monarch, monarchist <laughs> drumbeat. I can see this is, a, this is just going to be an, an, a, a regular theme from now on, I guess. I do want to come back to the, to the Queen's Concubines and Maidens Without Number uh, that's in six, eight, and following, and um, the this I think not only is a commendation from others of the beauty of the woman of the bride, but it's also a marker of the trajectory of the poem as a whole. Uh, we when we start, the bride is despised by her brothers. She's forced to work in the vineyard. She's swarthy and black, and uh, she's not commended for her beauty by other women. But now, toward the end of the poem, she's gone through these experiences with the lover. She's joined with the lover. And she has become not just beautiful, but there's a kind of cosmic beauty that's that the queens and concubines see in her. Uh, verse 10 and following. Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, and aw as awesome as an army with banners? So she's become, uh, she's taken on this uh, this awesome beauty in the opinion of the queens and the concubines, not just in the opinion of the, of the lover. I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded of the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. Come back, my uh, come back, O Shulamite, come back, my people, that we may gaze at you. Um, there's going to be another reference to this kind of growth of the bride in chapter 7 uh, at the end of the next Wasif. Uh, when the bridegroom is again celebrating her beauty, and he describes her as having stature like a palm tree. Uh, at the beginning of the poem, he's the tree, he's the apple tree, and she's getting, getting fruit from his uh, branches. Now she's become, has the stature of a tree, and he's climbing to get the clusters that are at the top of her. So there's this shift in the, in the, in the stature of the bride, there's a shift in her regard. There's the introduction of the name Shulamite in verse 13. Uh, which has not been used out, uh, before this in the song. As I mentioned, I think at the beginning of this series, Shulamite is just a, a feminine form of Shlomo, which is uh, Hebrew, the Hebrew name Solomon. And the Shulamite is a feminine, uh, not just in name, but in person. She's become a feminine, feminine Solomon. Uh, the queens and the concubines commend her. She's become elevated above all the queens and concubines and other maidens. She's become an equal to Solomon, She's been elevated to become a queen at Solomon's right hand. And the language that we're finding in places like this in the song are perhaps most reminiscent of Psalm 45, where you have the king's wedding. Um, Statements like, All thy garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made thee glad. King's daughters are among thy noble ladies. At thy right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Yeah, I think that would be a that would be an interesting comparison to work out the 
uh, interaction of the imagery and the themes of uh, Psalm 45 and the Song of Songs. I w- wanted to bring this back to a comment that uh, we kind of started with, and that then the uh, links between the Song of Songs and the Book of Revelation. And part of it is the overall shape that I'm that I've just mentioned. The, the song is moving from the bride despised to the bride exalted and and elevated. She's becoming the feminine version of Solomon. And in the in in uh, in the apocalypse, you have the same thing in regard to the bride. Jesus is presented in all his glory at the beginning of the book. The bride is presented at the end of the book. And you could read those two descriptions together and see numerous parallels between the way that Jesus is presented in his glory to John and the way that the bride is presented as she descends from heaven at the end of the book. So she she's become conformed to the bridegroom. She's the new Eve who is not only from Adam, from the new Adam, but she's also conformed to the new Adam. We see an anticipation of that in the, the Song of Songs. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>